get us started so that we can stay on time. So our next speaker is Dr. Jonathan Kay. Um, he is a professor of medicine and population and quantitative health sciences at the University of Ma um, at the University of Massachusetts Medical School. Um, in addition, he is the Elaine L. Peterson Chair in Rheumatology. Um, he is someone who has had a strong interest in the area of inflammatory arthritis, and for the past decade has helped and um, been very involved in the development of biosimilar agents. Um, so today, he's going to give us some updates on the use of biosimilar medications. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you, uh, our first, so I'm going to talk first about defining biosimilars and biomimics, what are not biosimilars. Then we'll talk about biosimilars that have been approved for treatment of inflammatory uh, diseases. Uh, then we'll talk about biopharmaceuticals, a bit about structure and changes in manufacture. And then the process by which biosimilarity is demonstrated. We'll talk about interchangeability and then we'll talk about the nocebo effect and economic aspects. So as you all know, uh, biologics are expensive, and the spending on biologics outpaces the growth of the overall pharmaceutical drug spending, where it was expected in this paper uh, that by 2017, biologics were expected to represent about 20% of the global market value for uh, pharmaceuticals. And the global biologic sales in 2017 were estimated to be at $221 billion, of which about $43 billion are TNF inhibitors. Cost, of course, limits patient access to biologics. So this is a reason uh, by which the uh, United States Congress passed as part of the Affordable Care Act the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act of 2009, in which they defined biosimilarity as being that the biologic product is highly similar to the reference product, notwithstanding minor differences in clinically inactive components, and that there are no clinically meaningful differences between the biologic product and the reference product in terms of safety, purity, and potency of the product. So this is the regulatory definition of a biosimilar. My definition of a biosimilar based upon reading not only the statutes in the United States, but also worldwide, is that a biosimilar is a legitimate, a legal copy of a biopharmaceutical that no longer is protected by patent, which meets two criteria. First, it has undergone rigorous analytical and clinical assessment in comparison to its reference product, but also it has been approved by a regulatory agency in a highly regulated area according to a specific pathway for biosimilar evaluation. If a country does not have a specific pathway for biosimilar evaluation, then um, protein can't be approved as a biosimilar. So there is no such thing as a biosimilar in those countries. Uh, but it has to have been studied and then reviewed and approved by a regulatory agency in order to be considered a biosimilar. This very complex slide, which is in your uh, slide set, is the current state of the biosimilars market as of February of this year. The European Union approved its first biosimilar, Omnitrope, a somatostatin biosimilar in 2006. And as of February of 2019, there were 56 approved biosimilars on the market. Four biosimilars had been approved and then withdrawn for various reasons. In the United States, there are now 17 approved biosimilars, uh, but not all of them are on the market. 
for inflammatory diseases, there are three approved infliximab biosimilars, three approved adalimumab biosimilars, one approved etanercept biosimilar, and one approved rituximab biosimilar, although that, although that is approved only for treatment of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. But of these TNF inhibitor biosimilars, only two infliximab biosimilars are on the market. The others are tied up in patent litigation uh, and have not been, or have not been uh, launched in the United States because of agreements between the manufacturer and the reference product company. There are 10 approved biosimilars in Canada, 21 in Australia, 17 in Japan, and 12 in South Korea. Now, the first biosimilar approved for the treatment of inflammatory disease or immune-mediated inflammatory disease was a, uh, an infliximab biosimilar manufactured by Celtrion in South Korea, which was approved in 2013 by the European Commission uh, for marketing, uh, and that was launched as Remsema and Inflectra. Remsema marketed by Celtrion, Inflectra marketed by Hospira, but the same drug uh, marketed by two different companies in the European Union. It wasn't until 2016 that that same infliximab biosimilar was approved in the United States as the first monoclonal antibody biosimilar to be approved in the United States. In August and September of 2016, first an etanercept biosimilar manufactured by Sandoz was approved, and then the next month an adalimumab biosimilar manufactured by Amgen was approved. There was another etanercept biosimilar and another infliximab biosimilar approved in the European Union. 2017 was a busier year, just highlighting what happened in the United States. Uh, Siltezo, which is Behringer Ingelheim's adalimumab biosimilar was approved. Renflexis, uh, which is Samsung Bioepis's uh, infliximab biosimilar was approved and it's marketed by Merck in this country. And Ixifi, which is Pfizer's biosimilar uh, infliximab, which they acquired from Sandoz, uh, was approved but Pfizer decided to not market it because they were already marketing Inflectra, uh, which was Celtrion's infliximab biosimilar. Uh, there were two rituximab biosimilars, uh, one manufactured by Celtrion, one by Sandoz, that were approved in the European Union. And in 2018, Trixema, which is Celtrion's rituximab biosimilar, was approved in the United States for treatment of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. And Hiramaz, uh, which is Sandoz's a limumab biosimilar was approved in the United States. This year, uh, Fresenius, uh, which had acquired Merck GmbH's uh, a limumab biosimilar, uh, uh, received approval uh, in the European Union. So this is the landscape of biosimilars for immune-mediated inflammatory diseases in the European Union and the United States. So Humira, Humira a limumab. Global sales in 2017 were $18.4 billion, of which two-thirds was in the United States, one-third outside of the United States, and Humira sales accounted for two-thirds of AbbVie's total revenue. Now, AbbVie, AbbVie's lawyers uh, spoke with the lawyers from each of the biosimilar manufacturers and reached agreements uh, with each of these biosimilar manufacturers that they could market their biosimilars in the European Union and outside of the United States as of October 16th, 2018, if they agreed to not market them until 2023 
in the United States. And here you can see the various dates that were agreed upon for the various biosimilars. So AbbVie granted a non-exclusive license to its intellectual property relating to Humira, beginning on various dates in countries in which AbbVie has intellectual property. However, Behringer Ingelheim has not announced a settlement with AbbVie and will not launch its Adalimumab biosimilar Soltezo in European Union countries because of ongoing patent litigation with AbbVie. And they announced publicly that they were focusing on commercializing Soltezo in the United States, uh, but did not yet announce a launch date. So Soltezo has not, uh, or Behringer Ingelheim has not announced an agreement to launch in 2023 based upon uh, an agreement with AbbVie. So the projected revenues for Humira in 2024 show very little decrease in the sales in the United States, but a 50% decrease in ex-US sales uh, based upon the agreements that I've just shown. So what is a biomimic? A biomimic is not a biosimilar. Biomimics are what people worry about when you hear about biosimilars. These are the knockoffs. Uh, these are like those Gucci bags that you buy from a uh, person who's got a blanket on the banks of the Seine uh, and they fall apart the next day. Uh, biomimics are intended copies. Uh, they're replicas of a biopharmaceutical that are not developed, assessed, or approved according to regulatory guidelines for biosimilars. Uh, the similarity has not been demonstrated by a stepwise and comprehensive comparability exercise. There may be differences in the primary structure from the biooriginator and the amino acid sequence of a biosimilar has to be identical to that of the reference product. And they may differ from the bioriginator in terms of formulation, dose, dosing regimen, efficacy, safety, and immunogenicity, any of which may result in clinically significant differences. So this slide, which I won't read to you, shows the rituximab biomimics and etanercept biomimics that are marketed in other countries. These are not biosimilars. These do not meet the criteria for biosimilarity and differences in efficacy and safety can be expected because they are not biosimilars. So all biologics, both the biooriginators, the reference products, and biosimilars are subject to variability. These are proteins that are manufactured in living cells. So unlike a generic small molecule where you can copy the active ingredient exactly and maintain that uh, structure throughout the production, there's variation that occurs as the process changes, as cell lines change a little bit. So you can have changes in protein folding, misfolding, aggregation, enzymatic cleavage, and degradation, all of which may result in loss of function of a biopharmaceutical. And you have to maintain glycosylation and these other properties which are responsible for the function of a biopharmaceutical. So there's normal batch-to-batch -batch variability in all biopharmaceuticals. The manufacturer establishes proven acceptable ranges of variation within which there's no expected loss of efficacy or increase in safety risk. So each of the batches that is produced is tested to make certain that it falls within these proven acceptable ranges for different attributes. And as long as the drug falls within these proven acceptable ranges, the batch can be released for sale. And within these proven acceptable ranges, it has been believed that this does not pose a safety or efficacy risk to patients, although some very interesting data that have come out of a biosimilar trial of trastuzumab 
have shown that even within proven acceptable ranges, there is some decrease in efficacy of the reference product over time. Drift uh, is unintended alterations in manufacturing that can result in deviation in product attributes over time. And you can see here on the right a trend which is a gradual change or a shift which is a sudden change. But both of these fall within the proven acceptable range and do not require the batch to be withdrawn from the market or not released to the market. Now there's also evolution. And evolution is a deliberate process change made by the manufacturer, such as implementing state-of-the-art technology or scaling up production, opening a new plant. And these changes are known both to the manufacturer and to regulators. They're discussed before they occur. And the regulators have a record of how many of these changes occur. In this paper that was published in 2013 by Christian Schneider from the European Medicines Agency, you can see that there were 37 changes registered for Remicade since its approval, uh, 21 for Enbrel, 18 for Humira, and so on. So changes are occurring without necessarily the knowledge of the consumer or the prescribing provider. So commercial lots of a bioriginator, a reference product, are not identical. Gradual changes have resulted from small modifications in the manufacturing process. And in this paper published by Martin Schiestel in 2011, they analyzed lots purchased between 2007 and 2011 of Darbopoetin, uh, Etanercept, and Rituximab. And here you can see for Etanercept, there are more basic variants uh, right here, more basic variants after the change. And there is more G2 fucosylation before the change and more G0 fucosylation after the change. So the protein itself is different after this change in manufacturing. But despite these differences, when the product was within these proven acceptable ranges, there's no change in label required and the batches can be released. Now, there are some changes that do result in functional changes. So these are pre and post change batches of rituximab. Here you have a threefold increase in G0 glycan content. And this resulted in an increase in antibody dependent cell mediated cytotoxicity. However, despite this, there was no change required in label. Patients and providers were not necessarily informed. So when a patient stops responding to a biopharmaceutical, is it because their disease has morphed or is it because there's a slight change in the biopharmaceutical that has resulted in this change in patient response? So when you're developing a biosimilar, the biosimilar manufacturer purchases available lots of the reference product and subjects them to many different analytical studies, structural and functional analytic studies, to understand the structure and function of the molecule. They then, with careful bioengineering, recapitulate the synthesis of that protein so that it has not only the same primary amino acid structure, but the same post-translational modifications, same tertiary and quaternary structure, and same function. So here you see the initial reference product quality range after a change in manufacture, these are the available lots purchased by the biosimilar manufacturer. So the biosimilar is developed with a range for control that is similar to that of the current reference product quality range. But the range for the reference product over time is wider than that for the biosimilar. So the biosimilar may be held to a somewhat higher standard uh, than the reference product has been over time. 
So general principles of demonstrating biosimilarity. The biosimilar has been shown to be highly similar to the reference product in extensive comparative analytical studies. So the biosimilar has to demonstrate similar efficacy and safety compared to the reference product in a pharmacokinetic or pharmacodynamic study if a biomarker is available to measure and in immunogenicity studies. And then one smaller double-blind active comparator trial compared to the reference product is required to demonstrate equivalent efficacy and to show comparable safety and comparable immunogenicity. This is essentially a bioassay. We already know that the reference product is safe and effective in all of the indications for which it's been approved. So if the biosimilar can be shown to be like another batch of the reference product in terms of structure, function, and clinical efficacy in this one trial, then one wouldn't expect any differences in safety or efficacy in any of the other indications for which the reference product has been approved. So this allows for extrapolation of indications. So there's no need to demonstrate efficacy of the biosimilar in all indications. And this can be followed with post-marketing uh, pharmacovigilance. Now, the analytical characterization methods for a TNF biosimilar are shown here. And you can see that there are many different assays looking at many different domains. And from the FDA uh, document that was released when there was the hearings to approve the first infliximab biosimilar, here you can see reverse phase high-performance liquid chromatograms comparing the reference product and European or European sourced uh, Remicade, United States sourced Remicade, and the biosimilar. And you see that these triptych digest patterns look very similar, uh, indicating the same primary amino acid structure. Looking at in vitro TNF neutralization in the center, in red is the biosimilar. On the left in blue is United States licensed Remicade, and green on the right, European Union licensed in, uh, Remicade. These are the individual dots represent individual batches, and you can see that there's variation among batches and that the biosimilar falls well within the range for EU and US sourced reference product. And EU sourced and US sourced reference product are not identical to one another. Uh, they're almost biosimilar to one another. And another assay, a functional assay, antibody-dependent cell-mediated cytotoxicity uh, using uh, peripheral blood mononuclear cells as effector cells. Again, the biosimilar falls well within the range of each of the sourced reference product. So the clinical trial. Uh, this is an example of the clinical trial that was done by Samsung BioEpis for their Tanercept biosimilar. And because the equivalence range was plus or minus 15%, the study is powered to require 600 patients uh, randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive either the reference product, Enbrel, or the biosimilar, SV4, in addition to methotrexate in patients with rheumatoid arthritis inadequately responsive to methotrexate. They were treated for up to 52 weeks. The primary endpoint was the proportion of patients achieving a 20% improvement in the American College of Rheumatology response criteria at week 24, and secondary endpoints are listed here, including safety. What was unique and important about this development process was that they measured not only time points at the plateau phase of the time response curve, but several of the time points during the early phase when there's an, an uh, increase in the number of patients responding. 
and these earlier time points are most sensitive to detecting potential differences between a reference product and a biosimilar because this is the time at which there can be a difference in the kinetics of accruing responders. So the fact that early time points track closely together is increased support for biosimilarity of the two molecules. Now in terms of safety, the similar proportion of patients having adverse events and serious adverse events. However, what was notable here was that the proportion of patients experiencing injection site reactions was lower for the biosimilar than for the reference product. Now, as long as efficacy is equivalent, a biosimilar may have better safety than the reference product and still be considered a biosimilar. Interchangeability. So interchangeability was a concept that was introduced by the United States Congress in the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act. And this term was defined as being that the biological product may be substituted for the reference product without the intervention of the healthcare provider who prescribed the reference product. Now this is very nice, but it was not, this was 2009, the Affordable Care Act was signed into law in March of 2010, but it wasn't until January of 2017 that the FDA came up with a draft guidance document indicating what might be expected to prove uh, interchangeability. So changing is an intentional therapeutic alteration that is initiated by a healthcare provider in partnership with the patient. So we change patients from a drug to which they're not responding to another drug, but you can make this uh, change for, non for economic reasons since a biosimilar may cost less than its reference product. This is called non-medical changing. But you can also change to a biosimilar if a patient is not responding to another drug and you choose the biosimilar instead of the reference product for economic reasons. Switching is a term that's used in the Biologics Price Competition and Innovation Act, and it refers to transitioning to or from a biosimilar that has been designated as interchangeable. As of now, there are no biosimilars that are yet designated as interchangeable in the United States, so there is no switching that occurs. All that occurs is changing. So the FDA, in their draft guidance, proposed that they were going to look at post-marketing data and data from a prospective controlled switching study or studies. And they talked about the design of that study, which would be a lead-in period of treatment with the reference product followed by a randomized two-arm period, switching arm versus a non-switching arm, with at least three switches with each switch crossing over to the alternative product. And the primary endpoints have to be pharmacokinetic endpoints with safety, immunogenicity, and efficacy being secondary endpoints since pharmacokinetics are much more sensitive to detecting potential differences between two drugs. The uh, Ample study looked at abatacept compared to alimumab, two completely different drugs, two completely different mechanisms of action, yet if you look at all of the different response criteria, the ACR 20, 50, 70, the change in the DAS 28, radiographic change, change in the health assessment questionnaire, those curves are superimposable for two different drugs, two different mechanisms of action, showing that our outcome measures are not sensitive enough to detect differences between two completely different drugs. So how can you be sure that they're going to be sensitive enough to detect differences between a biosimilar and a reference product? Pharmacokinetic endpoints are. And they talked about using US licensed reference product as a comparator. So the lower panel here from a chapter that I wrote in the Hochberg textbook is a graphic illustration of this interchangeability design. The comparator group is treated with the bio-originator throughout. 
there's the initial lead-in on the bio-originator followed by a switch to biosimilar, bio-originator, and then remaining on the biosimilar for a longer period of time to reach steady state. This is a trial that was called the EGALITY trial done in psoriasis for the uh, Sandoz biosimilar Tanercept that's approved in the United States. And here, for the first 12 weeks, they compared the biosimilar candidate to the reference product, and then they took half of the patients on each arm and they switched them over to the opposite drug for six weeks, then back, then over to the other drug. So this is essentially the design that the FDA proposed, but the primary endpoint here was a clinical endpoint, the PASI, change in the PASI uh, score, and so this would not qualify as an interchangeability study because pharmacokinetic endpoints were not measured. However, during this uh, changing period, looking at the PASI 90, uh, PASI 75, so PASI 90 on the bottom, the PASI 75 and the PASI 50, the two drugs tracked very closely together. So there was no loss of efficacy with these changes. Uh, the Norwegian experience with changing is the largest experience. This was the only uh, uh, randomized controlled trial that looked at changing. They took patients with all of the immune-mediated inflammatory diseases who were on stable therapy with the reference infliximab uh, for six months. They randomized them one-to-one -to, -one to either continue on reference infliximab or switch to the Celtrion biosimilar uh, infliximab DYYB CTP13. The primary outcome here was disease worsening at 52 weeks. And disease worsening was defined as a change in disease-specific indices or agreement between the provider and the patient that disease worsening required a change in therapy. With this study, they then had an open-label extension where patients who had been switched, who had not been switched to the biosimilar were then uh, switched to the biosimilar for an additional 26 weeks. The non-inferiority margin was 15% taken from the rheumatoid arthritis clinical trial of CTP13. It did not necessarily apply to psoriasis, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, psoriatic arthritis, or axial spondyl arthritis, but they needed to come up with some definition of a non-inferiority margin. Exploratory subgroup analyses were disease worsening within each of the individual diagnoses, but the primary endpoint was disease worsening for the aggregate of all patients. And what did they find? Here you can see overall, overall, uh, the uh, disease worsening did not hit the non-inferiority margin, so this was a positive study. However, if you look at each of the individual diagnoses, only spondyloarthritis did not reach uh, the non-inferiority margin. However, this study was not powered to look at individual diseases, so you cannot conclude that switch or changing was worse for these individual diagnoses. In terms of serum trough concentrations on the left, or anti-drug antibody incidence or prevalence, there was no difference between changing and not changing. So again, this study confirms the safety and efficacy of changing. In terms of adverse events, no difference between the two groups. So why do patients get worse when they're on a biosimilar? Elaine Husney was telling me that their institution, Cleveland Clinic, has been switching patients on Remicade to Renflexis and she's heard of a number of patients who've done worse, who feel their disease is not as well controlled when they're on the biosimilar. Well, to understand this, you have to understand the nocebo effect. 
placebo means I will please, and it refers to the beneficial effect of an inactive substance. And that can actually trigger uh, various areas of the brain to release endorphins, uh, dopaminergic neurons. Nocebo is the opposite of the placebo effect, and nocebo means I will harm in Latin, and it refers to symptoms and or physiologic changes that follow administration of an inert, chemically inactive substance that a patient believes to be an active drug. It refers to distressing symptoms that accompany placebo administration in about a quarter of patients. It can also account for side effects experienced by patients taking an active drug. You have patients who come in and they've experienced a side effect that's not explained on the basis of the mechanism of action, uh, but they truly have been experiencing these symptoms and misattribution of bodily symptoms is most likely in patients who expect to experience distressing symptoms, uh, patients who've experienced side effects to other drugs in the past, patients with anxiety, depression, and somatization, and patients who've read the internet and have erroneous information and misunderstandings about the drug. So you can address this by educating patients, avoiding imparting negative expectations about a drug, having open collaborative discussion, reassuring the patient, and encouraging the patient. So there were two very important studies that were done in the Netherlands in Nijmegen that were published in Arthritis and Rheumatology this past year. The first looked at biosimilar discontinuation due to subjective outcomes. So they took patients, 192 patients with rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, or axial spondyl arthritis, who switched from the reference product to the biosimilar. And they sent the patients a letter, said, we're switching you, and they made a phone call just to remind the patient in case you forgot about the letter, we're switching you. And what happened? Discontinuation rate within six months of the switch was 24%. Now, remember that the nocebo effect occurs with an inactive substance in about 25% of patients. So 24% is what you would expect based upon the nocebo rate. And there was no change in the disease activity score for rheumatoid arthritis or the BASDI for axial spinal arthritis. So there was no objective change in disease activity. When you look at the increases in the DAS-28, the disease activity score for rheumatoid arthritis, they were in the patient tender joint count and the patient global disease activity, not in the objective swollen joint count done by the examiner or the swollen joint count. So this suggests that this is due to the nocebo effect. So the same group did a follow-up study. They took the SB4 etanercept biosimilar, which has a lower incidence of injection site reactions, and they told patients that they were switching them from reference etanercept, Enbrel, to the biosimilar for two reasons. One, the cost was lower, so it was going to benefit society, and the Netherlands is a socially conscious country where this was regarded as a positive. And they also told patients that this drug might cause fewer injection site reactions. And they trained the nurses and pharmacists working in the rheumatology clinic to teach the patient about the nocebo effect and to educate them about the reason for this change. And they compared these patients to a historical cohort of etanercept originator treated patients. There was an overlap of about two-thirds of the patients in the cohorts, but that's because it's a small country. The primary outcome was the adjusted hazard ratio between stopping the biosimilar in the transition cohort and stopping the originator in the historical co cohort. <clears throat> and this was 1.57, slightly statistically significant. But the actual difference in survival on biosimilar or survival on reference product was not very different. When you look at the main reason for discontinuation in the historical cohort, it was lack of effect. 
when you look at the reason in the transition cohort, there was adverse events suggesting that the nocebo effect might be more operant in the transition cohort. Uh, legislation on biosimilar substitution, all but four states have legislation that's been passed, and the features of the legislation essentially, first, a biosimilar has to have been approved as being interchangeable in order for it to be regulated, and no biosimilar has been approved as being interchangeable. But you, as a prescriber, could prevent substitution by writing no interchange or dispense medically, uh, dispenses written or brand medically necessary. The pharmacist has to tell the patient that they're making a substitution, and the patient must be notified that this has been made. It has to be documented, and in some states, the pharmacist has to explain the cost or price of the reference biologic and interchangeable biosimilar to the patient, and some states grant immunity to pharmacists who make a, a substitution in compliance with state law. Naming of, bio, of biologic products, this has changed in the past month. Uh, the reference products have names like infliximab or adalimumab or sertolizumab pegol. In terms of di distinguishing a biosimilar from a reference product, the FDA suggests that a four-letter suffix be appended to the name of the biologic agent uh, to differentiate among these. Originally, this was going to be applied retroactively to all products, but recently, at the end of March, the FDA released another draft guidance suggesting that this would be done only moving forwards, but not going backwards. So here are examples of the infliximabs. Remicade is called infliximab. Inflectra is infliximab DYYB. Renflexus, infliximab ABDA, and infliximab QBTX, which isn't on the market as ICSIFI. So the justification for biosimilars is that the potential risk to the individual of switching to a lower-cost biologic uh, biosimilar should be outweighed by the potential benefit to society of expanding access to care for all. So the availability of biosimilars should decrease the cost of treating patients. Lower-priced biosimilars introduce market competition, provoking discounts and rebates for biooriginators, and multiple biosimilars of the same product should drive the price down. Biosimilars should be more readily available to patients for whom the biooriginator had been inaccessible, and greater global access to effective biopharmaceuticals, whether biooriginators or biosimilars, should reduce disability, morbidity, and mortality associated with inflammatory diseases. This slide shows the cumulative biosimilar savings potential in the five major European markets in the U.S. for eight key products, TNF inhibitors and hematologic molecules. And you could see that if there were a 40% discount uh, in price of the biosimilar by 2020, nearly 100 billion euros might be saved. The introduction of biosimilars did not reduce the market share of the reference product. The reference product market share stayed relatively constant. There was an expansion of the market for the other molecules of the class that did not have biosimilars. In Norway, there's a tender process, a competitive winner-takes-all bidding process where each year all of the manufacturers of a given hospital-administered product put in their bids and the lowest bid is taken in consultation with the providers who use that drug. In 2014, there was a 39% price reduction for Remsema, Celtrion's biosimilar infliximab, compared to Remicade. The following year, there was a 69% price reduction, and subsequently those numbers have not been made public, but I've heard that they've been even greater price reduction uh, for these products. And as of March 2015, the use of the biosimilar infliximab in Norway 
exceeded that of the reference product and the reference product decreased over time. This is a product forecast for Amgevita, Amgen's biosimilar Alimumab, where it was predicted that sales would approach nearly 100 million, uh, 140 million euros by 2022. And so what did AbbVie do? AbbVie in October 2018 in the Swedish tender reduced their price by 80%. So AbbVie bid for Humira at an 80% price reduction and won the Swedish national tender. And in Norway, more recently, they reduced the price by 85% and won the Norwegian tender. So AbbVie has been prompted to lower their price because of biosimilar competition. So patients benefit regardless of whether they get a biosimilar or a reference product, they're getting effective medication at a lower price. The sales of the biosimilar infliximab paled in comparison to those of Remicade during the first two quarters of 2017. And you can see here that part of the reason for that is that the average selling price of the biosimilar was $200 per 100 milligrams higher than the average selling price for the reference product. The average selling price takes into account discounts and rebates. Even though the wholesale acquisition cost was 15% lower for the biosimilar, the average selling price was $200 per 100 milligram vial. By the second quarter of 2019, the most recent data show almost a 50% reduction in the average selling price of the Inflectra biosimilar it's $50 less per 100 milligrams than uh, Renflexis, uh, and it's $175 lower than Remicade uh, in terms of average selling price. So you can see the effects of price competition. This slide shows the convoluted system of pharmacy benefit managers, where there are discounts and rebates from manufacturers that are negotiated with these uh, pharmacy benefit management companies. They keep some of the discount and rebate, they give most of it back to the insurer, the payer. They also charge a management fee. So these are very profitable companies uh, that are getting into the middle of uh, managing these uh, formularies. And this is the reason why the pricing of drugs is so complex in the United States and why biosimilars are not taking off in this country the way they are in Europe. So in conclusion, it is safe, effective, and cost-effective in most countries uh, to switch to a biosimilar. If the actual cost of a biosimilar is not lower than that of its reference product after discounts and rebates, the availability of the biosimilar introduces market competition that results in effective treatment for patients with the reference product at a lower cost. Why has uptake of biosimilars been limited in the United States? The regulatory process is relatively slow. However, it's sped up under Gottlieb with the FDA We'll see what happens now. Patent litigation and preemptive competition by bioriginator companies have prevented biosimilars from going on the market, as you saw with adalimumab. Uh, pharmacy benefit managers have given bioriginators preferred formulary status because of better deals with discounts and rebates. And there's been no systematic effort to educate physicians and patients who are concerned about biosimilar safety and efficacy. Summary, bioriginators are subject to drift and evolution and may vary from batch to batch. Biosimilars are highly similar to their reference products, like another batch of the bioriginator. A biosimilar approved according to regulatory pathway for biosimilars should be as effective and as safe as its reference product. 
changing from bio-originators to their biosimilars in clinical trials does not result in significant loss of efficacy or increased occurrence of adverse events or immunogenicity, and the availability of biosimilars introduces market competition that drives down the cost of biopharmaceuticals. 